Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. So I've, I've found myself more and more, you know, pretty much inadvertently pulled into this area of advising people and, and coaching people and starting things and starting businesses. Mm-hmm. And one thing I, that I've really noticed recently, just the past six months as, as I've gotten really into this, is there's this weird thing about uh, scarcity thinking, right? This, this idea that there's not enough, there's not enough time, not enough money, not enough resources, not enough experience, um, as opposed to an abundance mindset, which is, you know, there are so many opportunities and resources everywhere you look. And what I've noticed is this weird thing where, like the way scarcity thinking works is we assume anything that's scarce is valuable and we assume that anything that's abundant is not valuable, right? So it's, it's the basic way that our mind operates. If you have little bread, you go, Oh, bread is really, you know, really, really valuable. If you have little money, Oh, money is the thing. Uh, whereas if you have something abundant, you don't think much of it, right? If there were, if there were gold coins scattered out on the street everywhere, we would go, Oh, you know, gold coins, no big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the effect that this, this weird, it's almost like a met, like a mental heuristic or something is that the very resources that people have in abundance, they think are not worth very much. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Tiago, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much, Trini. Really, really happy to be here. Yeah, it is really cool to have you here. So I was introduced to you by way of our uh, mutual friend, Kay, who was a recent guest here on the Unmistakable Creative. And he started telling me a little bit about your work. And when he went mentioned the words build a second brain, I was immediately intrigued. But before we get <laughs> into how to actually build a second brain, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Man, it's such such a great question to start because actually, even just recently, I've come to the conclusion of the realization that this course that I teach, which is called Building a Second Brain, it's a five week intensive online course, uh, is really the it's like getting the productivity strategies of my dad, who was an artist, uh-huh. a painter, and translating them to everyone else, which I think is appropriate because, you know, we're entering this this world, this economy where everyone has to be an artist. Uh-huh. And so growing up, you know, my dad raised, uh, you know, four kids in California uh, on an artist's salary. And my mom, you know, didn't work. She worked in the home, uh, which I think is is quite a feat. And he did it. You know, he had his creative kind of um, artistic business, but he also had what he called his strategies. Mm hmm. And it was a whole series of everything from routines and habits to ways that he did research to ways that he would um, uh, generate ideas for paintings to the ways that he would reuse the same themes in paintings to not have to always start from scratch. Mm-hmm. And he really what he built for himself is is an artistic lifestyle that is, that is also, you know, financially uh, sustainable, which I think is something many, many people today are looking for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, walk me through how. Uh you go from that experience of growing up to how you get to the point that you're at today. Like what happened between then and now? 
you know, I really, uh, my, if you can call it a career has been this just random grab bag of extremely random things. Um, I took a long time to do college cause I kept switching majors. I think I took six years. Um, I started, you know, wanting to do international affairs, diplomacy, and then later business. Um, and I ended up as a teacher in South America in Brazil and Colombia, uh, teaching first English and then Portuguese. Uh, my mom is Brazilian and we've spent quite a bit of time in Brazil. So, um, Portuguese is a native language as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, after teaching for a couple of years, uh, in Brazil and Colombia, I joined the Peace Corps. Um, and I, I wish I could say that was, that was purely altruistic. I mean, I definitely wanted to, to be in a community and really help people, but it was also cause I just had no idea what I wanted to do, who I was, what my skills were. Uh-huh. Um, it was a fantastic kind of two year, um, you know, little structured activity, uh, in a foreign country, in my case in Ukraine, uh, where I continued teaching. So my kind of day job was an English teacher in a, in a local school. Um, but then I also had the, the opportunity to do a lot of side projects. Hmm. Um, and I would do things basically on the, the need that I saw in the community was for, was for leadership among youth, uh, for community service projects, um, and for these kind of, uh, skills that in the U S and the West, we learn pretty, you know, pretty much everywhere, like how to, you know, how to like in the boy Scouts in at the YMCA at church, we kind of have these structures. Um, and because of the collapse of the Soviet union, Ukraine, uh, in particular, uh, doesn't have a lot of those kinds of education and training available for youth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my big inspiration in teaching was basically this, this style of teaching called communicative or interactive teaching, uh, which was using games, using game activities and painting and drawing and, you know, throwing balls around and all these really fun things to learn English. Um, and when I came back from Ukraine to, to California, I realized that actually people want the same thing everywhere. Right. There's no like kid learning and then adult learning. Adults also like to be communicative and interactive and to play games um, in the course of learning. Mm-hmm. So I came back to California, uh, to Orange County, where my parents are from. Um, and I just the only two things I had in mind were the only two things that I knew that I wanted, actually, were that I wanted to work in technology and I wanted to be in the Bay Area. Uh, and so I moved here uh, with the first job that I that I got a hold of, which is for a, a large consulting firm uh, in the city of San Francisco. Uh, and the cool thing about that was that the the company that I worked for, which is called Faber Novell, it's a French consulting firm, uh, owned and operated owned owns and operates a co working space called Parasoma. And Parasoma, which was basically a co-working space, a sort of startup incubator, and also our office, was the absolutely ideal introduction to Silicon Valley. Uh, if there's anyone out there that's you know wanting to move to Silicon Valley or really any startup hub, and you don't feel like you have any you know special connection or anything, join a co-working space because you're basically in there in the environment and in the conversations with startups, um, kind of in their day-to-day life, seeing what the, the real behind-the-scenes experience is like, and not just what you read in TechCrunch or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after a couple of years of that. Uh, I started a workshop, a design thinking workshop for free um, that I would run every month or so uh, at the co-working space. So that was also the start of my business. Uh, 
And after a few months of doing that and realizing it was more fun and potentially more profitable than what I was doing during the day, I just switched and I started doing workshops full time. Hmm. Uh, So actually, I have kind of a backwards journey where I didn't start, you know, often people end up in corporate workshops like that's a like like an endpoint later on. I actually started with those workshops Mm -hmm. um, for some months, six months, a year. Uh, And then at some point I realized that actually I wanted to make these skills, which at at that point included um, design thinking. I had a workshop on design thinking, on habit formation, um, on GTD, getting things done, the the productivity technique, uh, and on self-tracking, on quantified self. And I realized that if I wanted to have the impact I wanted to have, I had to go beyond just, you know, corporate uh, offices, and I decided to do online courses and make that though, that content available to um, to anyone with an internet connection and some money to spend. Uh, and now it's been four years, and I'm really completely focused on online courses. I think we we're living at a really seminal time where we've we're just starting to make the transition to new forms of education, uh, and you know, online courses is just one of one example of that new that new thing we're moving to. So I'm super excited to just run with this 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 new wave and help invent the future of what it looks like to learn online mm, wow okay so tons of questions from that um i want to talk briefly about the peace corps uh and and you know i'm curious what are the lessons that you took away from you know teaching in foreign countries and being in part of the peace corps uh around human behavior relationships and community that uh have impacted your work today Oh, wow, man. So much there. Let's see. Well, one thing was just, it's really funny, the Peace Corps, because on the surface, it looks like it's a lot of suffering. (laughs) You know, you're you're in this foreign country that has, in most cases, very basic infrastructure. Uh, In my case, I was in a small town. I actually had hot water, hot running water, which was a big luxury. Um, But, uh, you know, I had to trudge through the snow to get to to school every day. Uh, Cooking was a challenge with just a a limited number of, of foods we had available. Uh, traveling on on the trains through the country was not easy. You know, a lot of real difficulties. Um, but it was also one of the happiest times of my life. I mean, I think many people have this experience that some of the most challenging periods are also the most satisfying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really found, you know, I, I was just so excited every week to work with my kids, to work on my side projects, to collaborate with other Peace Corps volunteers. Um, and the, the other amazing thing that comes to mind is that we, we had so few resources. You know, the, the, the Peace Corps, which is a, a U.S. government agency, gives you essentially the minimum to live. I think my budget was like 250 a month. Uh, which in Ukraine is is actually enough to get by. Um, but besides that, you know, you can apply for grants or for different things, but you really are given no pot of money or other resource to spend. Um, and so we had to be creative. And actually, by the time I left, I realized that was actually the skill that we were passing on to the people we were serving. It wasn't, oh, how to spend a lot of money. It was how to do something when you have very, very few resources. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we would have to, and actually this was the whole point, go into the community, find what does this community have at its disposal? Which kinds of relationships, which kinds of knowledge, which kinds of skills? How do we pool those skills and um, assign them to where they'll make the biggest difference? How do we use the media and use, um, you know, local community institutions and schools to to make things happen, uh, to improve the lives of these people without having a lot of, in this case, money? Yeah. 
how do other people who are listening to this develop that capacity to do as much as they can with limited resources? Do you think that this is a skill that can be learned? I do. And, you know, I've been thinking it's, it's funny you ask this. I've been thinking about this so much because as part of so once people finish my course, which is essentially on capturing what, you know, capturing your knowledge, organizing that knowledge in in a way that it's easily retrievable and then proactively using what you've captured to start and execute projects. Right. So the term one term we've been using is PKM, personal knowledge management, um, or you can think of it as personal content management. And I find that very often people finish the course and what they want to do with all this knowledge they've captured is to start something. They want to start a business. They want to start a website, a blog, a podcast, a side project. So I've, I've found myself more and more, you know, pretty much inadvertently pulled into this area of advising people and, and coaching people on starting things, on starting businesses. Mm-hmm. And one thing I've, that I've really noticed recently, just the past six months as, as I've gotten really into this, is there's this weird thing about uh, scarcity thinking. Right, this, this idea that there's not enough, there's not enough time, not enough money, not enough resources, not enough experience, um, as opposed to an abundance mindset, which is, you know, there are so many opportunities and resources everywhere you look. And what I've noticed is this weird thing where, like the way scarcity thinking works is we assume anything that's scarce is valuable. And we assume that anything that's abundant is not valuable. Right. So it's it's the basic way that our mind operates. If you have little bread, you go, oh, bread is really, you know, really, really valuable. If you have little money, oh, money is the thing. Uh, whereas if you have something abundant, you don't think much of it. Right. If there were if there were gold coins scattered out on the street everywhere, we would go, oh, you know, gold coins, no big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the effect that this this weird, it's almost like a me- like a mental heuristic or something is that the very resources that people have in abundance, they think are not worth very much. Hmm. Right. So the precisely what they do have, you know, the skills, the knowledge, because they're so abundant, because they, they live with those things every day and those things seem easy and fun and they, they're just they're everywhere. They they don't value them. You know, I, I talked to a friend recently. He's a what I call a super connector in Silicon Valley. He just knows everyone. You know, I can go to a party almost anywhere around here and just say, oh, do you know, do you know this guy? And the chances are they will. I mean, he's that well connected. And what I noticed talking to him is because he finds, you know, intimacy, uh, deep conversation and really um, close connection everywhere he goes. He actually oddly does not value those things as much as some others might. Mm -hmm. Um, someone else I talked to recently, she, she loves doing genealogical research. Uh, she spends the weekends, hours and hours, the hours just fly by for her as she, you know, searches ancestry.com or the, the genealogical records of the state, all these different things. And I asked her, you know, why don't you start a business? Like she actually does this for free. She'll take on someone's family history and then give them for free because she enjoys it so much, a kind of story of their family going back many generations. And I said, you know, why don't you start a business doing this? And she said, no, 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 no one would pay for this. It's so fun. (laughs) And so a lot of what I'm doing with this coaching is trying to get people to see that what they have in abundance to someone else is is so valuable. It's practically priceless. 
Okay, so the question I think that's going to arise from that for a lot of people, myself included, it's funny you mentioned networks because I realized one of my most valuable assets is the fact that I've built this massive network from 700 interviews. Um, Mm -hmm. How do people identify what it is that they have in abundance? Yeah, you know, this this is a great question. I've I've been doing it pretty um, just in conversation, listening for it. Um, And what I usually listen for is what people discount. You know, they go, oh, yeah, I, uh, I've been a part of a bunch of open source software projects. Well, but that's not a big deal. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm one of the top uh, contributors on Wikipedia. But, you know, that's just something I do for fun on, in the evenings when I'm bored. Um, you know, it's like what I, I, I really listen for. What is that thing that actually is quite rare, but to them is, is abundant? Um, so those are a couple examples. I don't know if I have any systematic way of doing that, which might be why it's so hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's do this. Um, I want to start really diving into this idea of building a second brain. You know, you talked about capturing knowledge, coding that knowledge, and then, you know, being able to access it in order to start something. So can you give us an overview of how somebody actually goes about doing this? Um, You know, maybe we can take a look at it through two lenses. Maybe we say, you know, we look at, for, for example, somebody listening to this podcast, how would they do that with the information that you and I are sharing in this podcast? And then how would somebody do that with something like a book? Great idea. So the let me give you the basic um, kind of anchor for people to think about this with. Okay. Um, the program that I use in the in the course is Evernote. Um, not that you have to use Evernote or it's it only works with Evernote, but that's sort of just like the implementation example. Um, and Evernote is this funny situation where it has something like 150 million users. I mean, it's it's one of the by far the biggest productivity programs on the planet. Uh, and most everyone I talk to who's pretty, you know, kind of digitally savvy um, has downloaded it or used it or at least heard of it. But then the next question that I usually ask is, do you love how you use Evernote? You know, yep. like, do you <laughs> do you really enjoy and know how to save things in there? Once you save something in there, like, do you ever find it? Uh, what is your basically your relationship to Evernote? Um, and besides a, a tiny minority of very, very hardcore people, um, usually they're pretty dissatisfied. Um, and this is what I think is so interesting about what is actually a whole category uh, of note taking apps. You know, you have Evernote, you have OneNote, um, you have one called Bear that's pretty new, but that's kind of uh, growing pretty quickly. Um, Zoho has one, Zoho Notebooks, I think it's called, uh, Google Keep, uh, Apple Notes. Like there's there's quite a diverse range of what you could call note taking apps. And even that, that word sounds so humble and like vague of note taking, you know, like, okay, is that like notes that conference? What is that? But I'm essentially arguing, or I believe that this humble category of note-taking apps is going to be one of the most important in the future of work. It really is because the, the role that it can fulfill is as your personal creative research database. You know, it's, it's different from everything else. It's not your email. That's like communication. It's not, you know, a bunch of word documents in your documents folder. It's not even Google docs, even Google docs. It's become clear has a very, very different purpose. Um, what we have with notes is little snippets, right? A line of text, a photo that you captured a little uh, segment of audio, um, part of a video, uh, a PDF, a screenshot, a brainstorm, a mind map, an outline, a 
a diagram, a drawing, like all these sort of, you could call them work in progress notes, right? They're not final. They're not something you would send to a client or send to your boss, but they're part of the, the process, your creative process of generating those things. So like something, so I have just many examples of this uh, in the course, but for, you know, audio is a more challenging one. Actually, we have one of our most active threads is how to capture notes from audio. Mm-hmm. Right. And we've rigged uh, rigged together things like uh, someone set up a, a Heroku thing where you can say, uh, hey, Siri, like completely hands free. You can say, hey, Siri. And then you can say, take a note, say what you want to capture. And then it will say that automatically to um, to Evernote. Mm-hmm. Uh, other people have pointed out, you know, voice memos, um, all sorts of different solutions. Uh, but essentially, it's similar to GTD to getting things done where you have phases. Right. In my, in my course, I have capture, organize and retrieve. Right. Um, and what I advocate is doing those very, very separately. Right. Like this is the problem. This is the problem. If you, for example, capture, say, some uh, insight or something from from an article. If you think that right at that moment, you have to find exactly where it goes, what it means, how it's going to be used. That's way too much friction. And there's no way you're going to do that. Uh-huh. Right. You actually have to do the capture as a, just as an end in itself. Just capture it, stick it in the inbox of whatever program you're using and then leave organization as a completely separate step, preferably like when you're sitting down like at your computer and you can kind of batch process it. Uh-huh. Um, so I have essentially uh, a system for each of those phases. Okay. Uh, for capture, the system that I that I created is called progressive summarization. And the idea here is, so I'll give you kind of a, a brief overview of each one. My kind of belief around capture is that the actual capture of the thing is not hard. Right. Like that's the one thing with these note taking programs that most people have done. Actually, you know, they say they've copied and pasted a line of text. They've saved a a web clipping or a screenshot or something. My theory essentially is that the difficult part is not capturing the source. It's capturing the insights within that source. Right. So it's essentially it's essentially um, extracting from that source exactly what is most meaningful and what is most insightful and actionable and and kind of exposing it so that your future self, uh, whether that's in a, a week, a month or a year, if they come across the source, they can grasp in an instant or very, very quickly the gist of the source without having to read the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so the way I do this, it's actually very straightforward. It's you, you summarize the source. So let's say there's a you know 5,000 word blog post. You add a layer and a layer for me is just a, it's a summarization, right? So you find maybe the 30 sentences or, or ideas that are the most insightful. Then you added another layer, which is layer two, which might be highlighting within those say bolded sections, what are the most important parts? Right. So at this point, you have the best and then you have the best of the best. Mm-hmm. Um, but leaving each layer in place. And this is the key thing is like you've seen many you know blog posts and articles with like summarizing books in one sentence. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's become very popular. Oh, 50 books in one sentence. To me, that is the most pointless thing ever. Yeah. Okay, it's completely pointless because you lose all of the context. Good advice or, you know, truisms without context are just they're just motivational slogans, essentially. 
So now imagine if for one of these articles, you know, you had, okay, this book in one sentence. Imagine if you could then go through the layers one at a time, uh, depending on how interested you were in the source. So let's say, you know, you read the one sentence and you go, wow, that's really, really interesting. Imagine if you then had a one paragraph summary. Then if you read the paragraph, you go, wow, this is still interesting. I want to go deeper. You then have a one page summary. If you like the one page summary, then and only then, once you've you've essentially pre-approved or pre-validated that this source is, is useful to you, it's relevant to your current problem, only then do you go back and read the, the original source because it's so time consuming. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. 
Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that made sense. You know, I have a lot of visuals to explain this because sure. it can get a little hard to understand through audio. Yeah. Um, but essentially, that's the system for capture. Okay, so let's do this. I want to take a look at it through a concrete example. Um, so I'm I'm reading a book right now called The Code of the Extraordinary Mind, and I'm going through and I'm you know doing what I always do, which is underline sentences that speak out to me. And and you know like um, I'm sure you're probably familiar with Ryan Holiday's note card system that he learned from Robert Greene, yes. which is all entirely. Uh-huh analog. So one, I'm curious what you have to say about that, but let's look at capture through the lens of something like what I'm doing with a book. Like how would I, how would you advise me to go ahead and capture, uh, in a, in a way that's actually useful? Okay, great. Um, is this an ebook or paper book? It's a paper book. I don't do ebooks. Okay. So what I would say, and, and all of these layers, um, that I talked about can be customized, right? So I don't go, this is the exact perfect way you have to do it. It's more the principle of, uh, of progressively summarizing. So what I would say is anything that strikes you for any reason and don't try to like figure out why, uh-huh. right? Don't just go, Oh, I'm going to use this in that project. This is useful for this problem. I have no, the, the first, the, the, the sort of, um, filter that you want to apply at the very, very bottom at the very, very beginning is just resonance. What resonates, you know? So what is interesting, what is insightful, what is resonant, what is, um, kind of weird, what strikes you as odd, what you sometimes don't agree with, what is potentially useful, like anything that's essentially just out of the ordinary. Um, and that would be your layer one. So what I would say is bring those into a note taking program, bring them into Evernote or OneNote or even just Apple notes or any of these programs uh-huh. uh, and leave it there. Leave it there. And this is this is one of the points that people have a really hard time grasping is I ask you to do to add these layers of summarization, not like on some sort of rigid schedule or not like, OK, I'm going to do one layer each week or one layer every day, but to do it completely opportunistically. OK, mm-hmm. so basically to only add the next layer at some undetermined point in the future when, say, you come across this note and you decide you want to review it, um, you're working on a current project or a current problem that could use this note or some other sort of opportunity or excuse. Um, and what you do at that point is add another layer. Go through and read what is your layer one. So the most relevant passages and bold the, within those. What are the very best passages? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that usually brings it down. Like I'll use, you know, my my experience as an example. You know, a, a good book might come down. The, the the layer one might come down to about five pages of notes. Okay. Now bringing it to layer two, which is just the bolded sections, now brings it down to like one page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so that's layer two. Layer three, again, opportunistically, at some undetermined point in the future, you highlight. So Evernote has a highlight feature. In other programs, it could be underlining or adding a color or some other thing. Yeah. Um, but layer three is, is highlighting. And I try to be very, very, very selective. Basically, the, the filter for something like layer three highlighting is like you want to be able to get the gist of the source in a glance. Huh. So like if I want to tell in like, say, 20 to 30 seconds, the main point of this book, that's how much I have to have highlighted, which is like maybe a paragraph, right? Right. Um, And it even, so layers zero through three are the basics, but then it goes beyond. Layer four, you could actually restate the source in your own words. Right. Like if it's if it's one of those books that really has a big, big impact on you. And it's like it's not enough to be passively bolding and passively highlight highlighting. You actually want it to be become part of the way you think you can add a layer four, which is at the top, just like a summary, a summary of the 
the source in your own notes. Layer five is actually creating something like a blog post or a tweet storm or a video. Uh-huh. Um, and that's like the, that's, you know, for maybe like one tenth of 1% of all sources, only the very, very best because it's quite time consuming. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's essentially the, the five layers. Wow. Okay. Um, one question, uh, when you're capturing, you know, via Evernote. So for example, if I'm reading a physical book, usually what I'm doing is taking pictures, um, of that text. How would I, how would I manage that? Can you highlight and bold stuff that you've taken pictures of? Yes. So we, we talk about this quite a bit in the course. Um, there's a few things you can do. First of all, the, with Evernote, this requires the premium version. It has, um, optical character recognition. Uh-huh. Uh, and this works, it works okay with handwriting and it works quite well with printed text. Okay. Mm-hmm. So at the very least, you know, if you don't add any other layers, you'll be able to do a search and it will find whatever is in that photo. Mm. Um, the second thing you can do is annotations. So Evernote has a feature where you can add like lines, arrows, callouts, little text bubbles, um, right on, right onto the image and it saves it right, you know, right there. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I would say is if, if the source is really valuable to you and you want to take it through the different levels of summarization, uh, is to, at some point you need to bring it from image into text. Right. As long as it's an it's an image, it's sort of static. Right. You're limited in what you can do. You can add maybe one extra layer, which is the annotations. Yeah. Um, but I would say instead of like sitting there and typing every single word out, like leave the photo as layer one, and then layer t- have layer two be only the parts of the the things you've taken photos of that are the very most valuable ones. Okay. Right. So that way, you maybe in in every page that you took a photo of or every paragraph, you have like only one or two sentences or one or two ideas. Okay. Um, curious, you know, what your thoughts are on the Ryan holiday note card system, uh, given that it's an entirely analog system. Um, and this is, uh, you know, a more digital approach. Like, is there value in doing that? Cause he seems to swear by it. Yeah. You know, I've, I've followed Ryan holiday quite closely. You know, he's, he's had a lot to say in this area. Yeah. And on the one hand, I completely get it. You know, it's the same thing with like with paper books, like like there's such clear um, and tangible benefits to having things be physical and having things be in the real world. Um, and I'm not going to say everyone must have a digital note taking system. You know, it's it's really it's really like if it's a need or a want that you see in, in your work. Yeah. Um, but I find that the ability to have my phone and anywhere I am to be able to take a photo or take a voice memo or write a, a te- you know, some, some text or, you know, in, in a conversation, write down some notes and save that in a place that I know will be instantaneously centralized, synced to every other device and saved to the cloud forever. The psychological effect of that is for me to save a lot more stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like in the past I had paper notebooks, I would carry a little paper notebook in my back pocket all the time. And I found that, you know, there was a certain amount of friction. So I would save some things, but not quite as much. Um, and even some of the things I did save, I would find wouldn't make it into kind of a centralized repository. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my, my thinking is just, if you find that you're 
you're in, you're wanting something that is already digital, first of all, actually, so it can be you know quickly integrated and synced and and used with your other digital programs. Um, something that's centralized, where you always know where to look, you always know there's one source of truth, and not like ten different locations where you have to look for something. Uh, something that's searchable, where sometimes I have no idea, like you know what you know. I want to find, say, my notes on an interview. I have no idea when that happened, who, what the person's name was, anything. But I remember one single word say it was like an unusual word like serendipity that appeared in that interview and i can do one universal search and find that thing to me those benefits are worth all the trouble of you know maintaining a digital system yeah okay interesting so we've talked about the capture piece let's talk about the organized piece yes so for organization this this is a very um it's a very interesting thing because one of the you know, my business is all about productivity. So everything I do is in some way related to productivity. And one of the, like the universal sort of complaints or things people feel is this phrase that I hear constantly, which is, I just need to get organized. Right. It's like a, it's partly a cry for help, a cry of like desperation. And I think that that my take on that is it's sort of a superstition. It's sort of a superstition that if you are quote unquote organized, that suddenly everything will be easy and, and suddenly everything will be frictionless. And I don't think, well, I think part of the, the problem there is people's conception of organization, which is basically aesthetic. You know, that we have this idea that as long as like the surfaces are clean, as long as everything is in a box in a silo with a nice little label that it's organized. And I just don't think that's the case. My my take on organization is that what it means to be organized or what it looks like to get organized depends really completely on the the result or the outcome that you're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Right. Like for, uh, you know, for my dad, who's an artist, his studio is a disaster. There's paint on the walls. There's like, you know, things he's picked up from the street that he wants to put in his paintings. There's like sketches. It's a disaster. But he's organized. He's organized for the kind of work that he's trying to do. Yeah. Um, another big misconception with organization is, and this, this is, I think, a huge friction point that makes people just not get organized, is they think that they have to, in order to organize a thing, so let's say they have a file or a folder, and they say, okay, where does this thing go? They think they have to figure out up front what that thing means. Like, like what, is, what is the essential nature of this thing? <laughs> Um, and so you see organizational systems that are based on like theme or topic or, you know, or sort of like the meaning of the idea. And I think that that is, first of all, it's, it's essentially impossible, right? With the way that our work is today, an idea you capture that you think is related to one project actually ends up being related to something completely different. Uh, you know, an idea that you think is just merely interesting ends up being critical. Uh, something, you know, it, it, the, the, the way, the, the difference between what we think something is going to mean or how it's going to be useful and what it ends up being used for is just totally unpredictable. Um, and so the, the system that I developed really over, over years is called Para, uh, which is spelled P-A-R-A. And that stands, so those letters stand for projects, areas, resources, and archives. And the idea with Para, like if you want to really boil it down, I have lots of like tutorials and guidelines and best practices and different things. But the essential idea is do, do not even attempt to organize your, in this case, notes by what they mean. Organize them by actionability. Mm-hmm. 
So how actionable they are. So if you look at the four categories, they're actually a spectrum. Projects are your most actionable things, right? Like things you're working on right now, they usually have a deadline, they have a scope, they're, they're really active. Um, the second one is areas of responsibility. So basically things you're responsible for are things you need to pay attention to um, or have some level of engagement with, but that are not as, as urgent. Um, R stands for resources, which is basically just like interests or things you're kind of interested in, like web design or visual thinking or big data or coding or something like that. So, you know, it's it's actionable to the extent that you want to kind of learn about it and keep up to date with it, but not so actionable that it's like a project. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then archives, the last category is simply anything from the other three categories that is no longer active. Yeah. And the so the benefit of organizing things by actionability is you can decide really pretty instantaneously how actionable something is without even really understanding it's like what it means or what it is. Uh, um, I, I had this experience recently with a book I read called The Inner Game of Work. And basically, I, I, I read it. I decided it was going to be fundamental to, to my coaching. Uh, and so I put it over a period of time through, you know, five layers. I bolded the sections. I highlighted the best of those sections. I created a mini summary in my own words. Um, and now I'm working on layer five, which is a blog post. Right. So, so I know it's very, very important to me. Um, but I, I, what I noticed recently working on the blog post is there are, there are whole sections that I had highlighted that I knew were important, that I knew were going to be useful, that I hadn't actually really digested, right? That I hadn't actually like read, like he has this list of questions, you know, these are the list of questions to ask one of someone you're coaching. And as soon as I saw that, I said, okay, this is going to be valuable. And that made it all the way to, to, to layer five, but I hadn't actually until writing the blog post, taken the time to read individually those questions and really like think about them, mm-hmm. you know, like, what does this question mean? Okay. Let me just like sit back and like ponder that. And that fact that I could take it through so many layers of summarization without having to actually think about it, because this sort of analytical thinking is your, 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 your most energy intensive and most precious thinking to me, that's a success, right? Like that's the essence of this just in time, um, idea that revolutionized manufacturing is you want to, you want to put the value creation as close to the problem as you can. Right. And, and this is the fundamental problem with our whole paradigm of planning and project management is we have this idea. Actually, I did a tweet storm on this. That was my most like controversial tweet storm ever. I think it made the, the front page of Hacker News because people were just railing on me for this because I said do, it's not a good idea in all situations to do everything in advance. Sometimes with unpredictable work, such as creative knowledge work, the more in advance you do things, by the time it gets to the point of actually executing all the work you did up front is actually deprecated. It's actually not that useful anymore. Um, so that's the idea with something like Para is to locate the, the creation of value at some future point in time when you know that value will be most useful and not to do everything up front. Wow. <laughs> so I know that, that, was, that was quite a, a lot. I just dumped on you, but that's, yeah. that's the basic idea. Wow. <laughs> this, you're you're going to have a, a huge impact, I think, on my entire <clears throat> process of, of how I read, I, you know, it's funny because I'll probably still continue the note card system, but it, it's making me really rethink, how, you know, how I capture knowledge. So let's talk about retrieval um, as the last piece of this, because I know that's a big part of it. And, you know, talking about retrieval in a way that leads to some sort of action, like how do you tie the retrieval to the action you want to take? 
Yes. So here's the there, there's kind of a catch with which you probably heard it with just in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was true in factories, in manufacturing, and it's true with knowledge work, which is you can only do things just in time if you can move very, very fast. Right. Like like in a huge company, in a huge bureaucracy, they can't do just in time because it takes weeks or months to get anything done. So they have to do everything way in advance with with knowledge work, especially, you know, like individual freelancers or um, or people with online businesses or small teams or startups, which is I know as much of your audience. Um, one of so it's, this is speaking of, uh, you know, undervalued resources. I, I really often see that startups and freelancers, they really do not understand the value of their ability to move fast. Right. Like they take it completely for granted. They think they think that's just the way things are and not as as a as an asset, like as a resource they can actually spend. You know, they have the ability. A freelancer has the ability to to turn on a dime. They can change the whole direction of their business practically from one day to the next compared to a huge company. Um, and so I really, I really, you know, the people in my course are, are largely either they're freelancers or they have their own business or they're work, they're looking to, to work in a more agile way within a company. Uh, and so the, the kind of, um, system that I developed for, for retrieval is called workflow strategy and workflow strategies are this, um, really library of techniques that I've developed, um, 16 of them so far. Um, and we're in the process of adding more, but basically it's so, so first of all, I want to point out, they're not just workflows, right? People have this idea that, Oh, if I just had this like perfect workflow, if I could just have this like flow chart diagram, like once and for all, then I could just like stop thinking and just my work would be just set for all time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm going to say no, like your work is going to change constantly. You need a workflow, you need a system, but you also need strategy. And the thing with strategy is that it's fitting a problem to a specific context, right? It's not like using the same technique every time. It's like really having situational awareness and saying, what is the the strategy or the technique that is really going to be effective here? Um, and so the, the, the workflow strategies are essentially just learning the, the kind of toolkit of different techniques. Uh, and I can give you some examples of those, um, to execute projects much, much faster than would otherwise be possible. Um, so an example, let's see. Okay. So one thing, one of them is called, um, archipelago of islands. Uh, and this comes from a quote where uh, this, this blogger, I, I forget his name was saying, you never, ever want to, in fact, I'm not going to say he said something different, but this is my interpretation. You never want to face the blank page, right? The blank page is death. The blank page is the enemy. It's, it's sort of, um, it's, it's kind of scarcity thinking because you're never really, you're never really at a blank page, uh-huh. right? Like I really advocate starting with stuff, starting with materials, even if it's just stuff to play with stuff to throw around stuff to destroy stuff to combine and mix and match. Um, and I saw this with my dad growing up, by the way, actually, he would just start painting, you know, he would make like a pineapple. He has a whole series of fruits that he painted and then go, actually, this pineapple reminds me of a figure. And then suddenly before you know it, the pineapple is a person. And then he goes, no, this is all wrong. And then he, he would quite often completely paint over the whole image with just like white or black. So then he starts over and then he starts something else. It's like, he's just, he's not like trying to like, 
you know, carve the statue of David, his first attempt from scratch. He's really just playing. He's throwing stuff on the canvas, sometimes literally like, you know, throwing his, um, he'd get his paintbrush and sort of do a whipping motion and it would like, you know, throw this like splatter of paint. Um, and so Archipelago of Islands is essentially trying to do that with knowledge work. So I'll give you the example of um, a blog post, which is one of the, the main creative things I do. <clears throat> I start with a, with a, like an archipelago. So basically an outline. Right. I just dump into a document every conceivable conceivable idea or possibility or question or sometimes image or drawing or previous thing I've done that could conceivably be useful. Um, and then the, the reason it's called Archipelago of Islands is instead of trying to build this island from scratch, all you're doing is creating connections. Mm. Right. It's like each line of that outline is like an island. And all you have to do is is find how do I get from this idea to this idea, this idea to this idea. Like it's creating a string of connections between those things. Um, and this is a technique I think a lot of people use, a lot of writers use. What PKM allows you to do, and this is I have in the course these in-depth case studies where I spend like an hour um, going really in-depth on how I executed a project, is people often don't believe this, but using PKM and things like universal search and tagging and linking, I can uh, review between 100 and 200 sources in an hour. So often I'll, I'll give myself 60 minutes for the research phase of a blog post. And my blog posts are long. They tend to be like three to 6,000 or, or more words. Um, I can, in a remarkably short amount of time, um, not like go in and, and read those sources and understand them, but just getting the gist of them because of progressive summarization. Mm-hmm. I can compile into one outline between 100 and 200 sources because I can just get the gist of the source in like a few seconds. So then my task becomes so easy because when you have 100 and two to 200 sources, you don't even have to like if you can just create connections between 10 of those or 15 of those or 20 of those, you have a long form blog post right there. Uh huh. And I find that, too, um, I do a lot of series. So I find I do the first in the series, which is already long. But because I have, you know, another 150 or 160 extra sources that I didn't get to use, the whole series of blog posts is already ready for me. I have the whole sequencing. It's just a matter of reorganizing. Um, and having kind of that roadmap is important to me because my blog is, is paid. It's a, it's a membership blog. So people pay $5 a month. So I actually have a commitment to a publishing schedule every single month. I can't just, like, blog when I feel like it or when inspiration strikes, you know? So yeah, that's, that's one example of one of the techniques. Wow. Um, (laughs) this has been mind blowingly cool. Uh, now I know why Kay referred to you. I mean, I'm, I'm truly blown away by all of this. Uh, so I have one final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? You know, I think it is doing work that is really in line with their essential nature. You know, not not pretending, not hiding, not avoiding who they really are, what they really think, um, but insisting and running after a a work, a kind of work, whatever deliverable or format or or structure that takes, um, that is 
uniquely you. I know that sounds probably cliche, but you know, the challenge of, of that is doing it in a way that works financially mm-hmm. It's finding something where you can be you and create work that is an, a true expression of who you are, um, while monetizing and making it sustainable. Yeah. Uh, and that's actually what I'm engaged in with PKM and productivity and my coaching, uh, is, is helping people find that fit, that fit between their essential nature, their essential, you know, self-expression, and all the, the external systems of note-taking, of selling online courses, of uh, all the different digital tools and digital platforms that we have at our disposal, uh, which is kind of what I am, am passionate about, yeah. helping them find that fit to create new kinds of work and new lifestyles. Wow. Wow. Well, this has been truly amazing. Um, where can people learn more about you, your work, and the course? Yeah, so my my homepage, which has links to everything else, is Forte F O R T E Labs L A B S dot C O. So not dot com dot C O. Uh, and if they want to go directly to the Building a Second Brain course, it's just buildingasecondbrain.com. And on that website, I have really the, the curriculum, the, the, um, the schedule, the you know testimonials, everything you could possibly want to know about the courses is, is at buildingasecondbrain.com. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.